Hello, and welcome to the CSJ's Beyond Westminster podcast, where we bring you the real stories from across Britain's forgotten communities. This week, the CSJ's Head of Family Policy, Christina O'Done, speaks to author and activist Yehudis Fletcher and CSJ researcher Alexandra Galvin about so-called honor abuse, an under-discussed aspect of domestic abuse. They also speak about how the health service can identify and support those suffering from domestic abuse and play their part in tackling this issue. Please note that this podcast shares stories and examples of domestic abuse, which some listeners may find distressing. Hello, I'm Christina Odone. I'm the head of the Family Policy Unit here at the CSJ, and this week we will be looking at the issue of domestic abuse. Domestic abuse is considered a crime, a terrible, terrible, reprehensible crime, of course. But given that only about 17% of abused men and women will report this crime, how viable is it to look at it purely through a criminal justice perspective? This is why the CSJ decided to look at domestic abuse through the health lens. It makes sense. Most men and women will report their abuse to their GP. And what happens then? How effective are GPs in referring these victims to the right services, to the right support? Are GPs conscious that this is part of their duty of care? We asked ourselves this question. And we asked it of some of the great experts out there on this terrible, terrible issue. Today, I'm joined by Yehudis Fletcher, social and political activist and co-founder of a great organization called Nahamu. And by Alexander Galvin, our senior researcher and author of our most recent report looking into this issue, No Honor in Abuse. Yehudis. You've described some of the Jewish practices as tantamount to abuse. Can you explain what they are? Thank you. In some parts of the Jewish community, um, there are practices that have emerged as kind of held almost as sacrosanct, when in fact they they are not Jewish, they don't reflect Jewish values, and and historically they're not necessarily what would have been considered to be honourable, if we're going to use that word. Um, And we're talking about things like ensuring that children um, are getting married at a very young age, sometimes before their 18th birthday, and, and then entering that marriage without advanced knowledge of what consummating that marriage looks like, an expectation that the marriage be consummated immediately on the night of the wedding. And then you have this emerging situation where there's two people engaging in sexual activity that neither can really can give informed consent to. Um, and people have described this experience as being raped by God. Carrying on from this, as a woman's menstrual cycle um, dictates her quote-unquote purity or or impurity in the marriage and therefore her availability for for sexual activity, this um, expectation of of sexual activity between man and wife is, is 
really strongly dictated through a um, through religious expectations in line with a woman's menstrual cycle um, and for some people where there's good communication and um, people actually love each other and, and want that sexual connection then that can can reflect the natural ebb and flow of a relationship but for others who may not be happy or um, may not want their timetabled sex to be dictated by someone other than the two people in that relationship, it can leave, lead to really coercive sexual practices. Yeah, it is one of the things that we discovered in the course of our research uh, for the report was that there were quite a few GPs, health visitors, midwives, uh, clinicians who were loath to spot the signs of abuse. When it comes to a Jewish victim of abuse, could this reluctance by the health professional be down to fear of being accused of being anti-Semitic? Yeah, absolutely. That's something that, that I've really noticed myself. Um, I think it's really that distinction that you just made just now is really important. It's about noting and spotting signs of abuse because most people in my community, for sure, don't necessarily know what, what is abuse. Like when I was growing up, I got married when I was 18. I didn't know what rape was and I didn't know that rape was illegal. Um, so I think it's about, it's not just about saying who's likely to disclose. It's about that health professional who is really um, probably the only representative of the state who's going to be in in contact with people in, in um, otherwise closed communities to be able to spot signs of abuse and have that confidence to empower people to to avail themselves of, of support that, that is out there, but also to just know their rights within, you know, it's not necessarily about telling women to leave their marriages. It's about empowering often young people, not, 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 we're not just talking about adults here. There's, you know, people getting married um, at a very young age. And that means, you know, you can have an 18, 19 year old girl sitting in front of a GP asking questions that may seem innocuous but actually if you're willing to delve a little bit below the surface you might um, help her to understand that, that what she's dealing with number one isn't okay and she, not something she needs to put up with and number two there are small tweaks that can be made to both part both partners in that relationship to help them establish healthier safer home life for both of, for both of them um, and and the unwillingness to do that and the unwillingness to like kind of probe a little bit and ask that second question or the third question um, is often due to this kind of, it, it's not just a fear of being called an anti-Semite, it's this deeply, it, it's it's just not being confident in in a belief that actually everybody deserves to be safe. And it's a kind of Mm, I don't want to probe about religion and what if it's a cultural practice or there's this whole blown up idea of cultural sensitivity or cultural competency, which is full of good intentions. But it actually means that you've got ordinary professionals who are well equipped and fully understand what abuse looks like, how to spot the signs, how to support people who have experienced abuse. But somehow when it comes to minority communities, because they haven't got that confidence in transferring 
all the rights um, that everybody else is entitled to and, and acknowledging that people in minority communities also should, should have access to those same freedoms. Well, this is what Alexandra and I found uh, when we were doing research into this, uh, this subject. So many closed communities are, well, they're so closed, they're so insular that those professionals who come across them don't quite know the language to use, don't quite know uh, what, what traditions are, what, uh, what is valued and what is less valued. And this is why one of our biggest recommendations, and I must say it has caused some controversy already, is to banish the term honor abuse. What does honor abuse mean to you? Honor abuse is a box to tick. It's a way to um, confine practices that would be well recognized as abusive outside minority communities and to kind of separate separate um, those those practices and, and almost have this kind of special, like this kind of abuse is special and it's kind of normal for them. And, and yes, sure, if this abuse was reported to the police, um, certain protections could be put in place, and I understand the function of that. But in, in practice, most of these crimes are not being reported to the police. Um, and the criminal justice system is struggling to prosecute ordinary stranger rapes on the street. So to expect that um, people who, you know, have very little interaction with wider society, should have confidence in the criminal justice system, should be going out and reporting their abuse. I'm not saying that they shouldn't be. Absolutely, they should be supported in doing that if that's what they want. But really, it kind of misses the point. Health professionals who come into contact with mothers in minority communities on a daily basis, GPs, health visitors, midwives, these are the people who need to understand that there's no honor in abuse. And a woman who's being abused in her home, whether it's because her husband's an ordinary batterer or a batterer who's got religious ideology behind him, um, needs support either way. And it doesn't help to kind of create this imaginary, I don't know, like divide and conquer. You once said to me, and I loved it, I don't want to feel special because I'm Jewish. I want to feel safe as a citizen of this country. Absolutely. I, um, I expect to be seen as a citizen entitled to the protection of the state, not necessarily asking for the interference of the state, but I want um, the freedoms that is, you know, available to every British citizen to be available to me too. And the idea that as a Jewish woman, somehow being expected to go through certain practices and, um, you know, I, I should just put up with that because that's normal for me. Um, I don't think it's acceptable in this country to dictate when and how a woman ought to have sex. And, and, yet, and yet that's happening on a daily basis. Um, and there's no kind of education around this. There's no uproar. Um, and if, if I were to go to my GP and say, in fact, I'll tell you a personal experience. I went to my GP 
I had thrush. I had a, 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 a recurring thrush, and um, and I begged him. I said, I really, you know, I, 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 it was driving me crazy. And he said, Listen, you, 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 it's not going to get better, and you need to practice abstinence. And, and I tried to tell him that that wasn't possible for me because of the situation in my marriage I, I i felt obliged whether someone was standing over me ordering me to do it or not i felt obliged at certain times of the month to be available um in line with my menstrual cycle and i i actually said to him i said can you tell my husband that and that was an opportunity for him to step in and say hang on a minute what support to both of the, the people in this couple like what's going on in this home and how can he as a healthcare provider um support us as a family to, to navigate this situation better. And instead he just shied away from it. Um, and, and, and I don't think that's a one-off experience. It, it was a one-off experience for me. It was a one-off opportunity of me asking for help, but it certainly wasn't a one-off experience for him encountering someone in this state of difficulty. Another personal experience I'll tell you. After my second child was born, I went for my checkup after I had my baby. And um, they have a conversation about contraception. That's what you do. It's one of the things that's discussed at a post-baby checkup. And and I said to the GP, I said, you know, this when a woman's bleeding finishes, you have to then immerse in in a ritual pool, and then you have to reconsummate your relationship. That's not that night. That's what's expected of me. So I need contraception that's going to protect me tonight. So she said, well, then you have to use a condom. And I said, well, that's religiously forbidden. My husband won't use a condom. What can I do? And she sent me off with some leaflet about female condoms, which was like, so like missed the point by about 14 miles. Um, it, again, that's a, a missed opportunity for her to stop and think and say, hang on, you can say no. And and if I'd been empowered, I'm not saying that anybody was, again, standing over me and saying, you have to have sex tonight. But I was primed to put myself in this position. I was taught to submit to this. And if she had said to me, hang on, you know, I'll talk to you and your husband together, I don't think my husband would have forced me, Right. But I didn't know how to say no. You used a word, taught, mm -hmm. that really interests us. How can education be co-opted to support closed communities better? Could the forthcoming schools bill have any recommendation within it that could be helpful? So in terms of, of legislation, it was actually the legislation around relationship and sex education um, that that has already um, legislated for relationships education to be mandatory, even if, if on some level you can opt out of, of sex, um, the sex education element. This education around consent is so important and you know, I've heard arguments that say, no, religious communities should be able to opt out of it. Actually, no. Communities where there is universal early marriage actually need to understand consent even more than other kids. Because it's, it's you know, if you have a class of 35 kids in an ordinary school, some of them will be engaging in sexual activity, some of them won't. You would hope um, that if you offer relationship and sex education, that there would be general uptake. But if you have a, a class of 35 
girls in the Orthodox Jewish community where all of those 35 girls will be married by their 19th birthday, having to consummate their marriages immediately. Those are the girls that need to understand consent and those are the boys that need to understand consent. Educating about consent is not something that should be focused on girls. Boys need to understand this issue. So thinking about the forthcoming, this, this schools bill that's been introduced that has in it specific recommendations and, and, is, and is looking, and, and, and I don't think, any, we won't make any bones about it, it does specifically target the Orthodox Jewish community in seeking to regulate yeshivas. Yeshivas are education that's provided um, to post 13 year old boys, that is post bar mitzvah boys within parts of the Orthodox Jewish community. And until now, they have not been, they've not needed to register as schools because ironically, they don't teach any secular education. So they just don't come under um, the current definition of what is a school. And the schools bill seeks to close that loophole because they don't, they, they haven't been able to be regulated until now. They can't be um, inspected by Ofsted and they can't be held to the independent school standards. Those boys need to understand consent. Okay, I don't want to end this uh, this section of the podcast on a low, low negative note. What about recovery? You know, here you are, you are um, a, a quoted expert, you write uh, all over the place, uh, you, uh, you give speeches, you have recovered. What can similar, you know, what paths to recovery are there for young Jewish women, young Jewish men who've suffered domestic abuse? I think recovery is a process. It's about discovering a sense of self. And it's about that you start with a kind of maybe a, maybe a light bulb where you realize that this isn't something that needs to continue for you. And then you go through a long process of encountering different pathways that help you further empower yourself and 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 sometimes recovery is not a straight line recovery goes up and down and it's a bit like hills and valleys um it's not just encountering like finding support services which are necessary but kind of almost sometimes support services act as kind of a band-aid on these problems. And what we actually need is accessible institutions across the board. So universities need to be accessible to people coming from closed communities. Um, I was lucky enough to be able to access, um, I did social policy at Salford, which has an alternative access route, right? So I didn't have GCSEs or A-levels, but I was able to to access university without that because they recognize um, that, that an alternative access route is required. Um, and, and, and that's just one example. What I, what, what I would like to see across the board is, you know, equality and diversity in, in, in a much, much broader sense to be really opened up to be thinking about how accessible are different institutions across society to people who, who have had um, a, a more difficult time getting there. Thank you, Yehudas, and um, we'll be coming back for um, for more of your wisdom. But meanwhile, Alexandra Galvin, when we were writing this report, there was a soundtrack in the background, and it was a social media soundtrack starring Johnny Depp and Amber Heard in a sensationalist trial. 
That's right. Why was that so important? Because one of the things that really interested me was this element that we had been looking at, but nobody else seemed to be conscious of, which was male victims. That's very true. So something we actually know from the ONS is that a third of victims of domestic abuse are men. And that's often overlooked, especially in terms of services that are provided towards male victims. That's something I actually wanted to ask you a little bit more about as well, Yehudis. Could you tell us about how experiences of male victims might differ or how similar they might be to female victims, especially in the Jewish community and in terms of honor abuse? I don't, um, I don't want to speak for men in what, in what their experiences um, encompass. So I would say this is not exhaustive, what I'm going to say. Um, I think the coercive control that both men and women experience is often by a whole community, right? So a man, for example, who wants to leave his marriage or is controlled within his marriage is likely not just experiencing abuse from those people, just like from his wife, for example, but there's a whole network of people. So there are in-laws, there's um, rabbis who are involved in the family. And so men can absolutely experience this kind of coercive control, even if they're not experiencing physical violence. They can also experience reproductive abuse. So men who, under Jewish law, would not be allowed to have a vasectomy, not allowed to use a condom because we're not allowed to, quote-unquote, waste sperm, um, have no control other than um, just abstinence. So if they're expected, just as women are, to reconsummate their marriage throughout every every time a woman finishes menstruating um they also it's this experience of being raped by raped by god right so it's not necessarily their wife abusing them there's a whole cohort of men who may not want to have another child maybe they have financial worries maybe they're not happy in the relationship um and and yet they feel that they cannot say no to this um to, to having another baby and and it, you know I mean I wish men could I, mean, I wish we did have a pill that men can just take and I believe one was trialed um but they cancelled it because the men got headaches or something <laughs> Alexandra back to you also in the background uh a news story that was really really uh, horrific and and uh traumatic the ones about baby Arthur and Star Hobson and other children who had suffered uh, violence and indeed uh, fatal violence. You decided to look at serious case reviews for a clue as to how we could prevent such tragedies in the future. What did you find? That's absolutely right. We took a look at... 46 of the most recently published serious case reviews from 2021. And we actually found that within 80% of these serious case reviews, there were elements of domestic abuse. And within those, 70% of cases actually had either the perpetrator or the victim present themselves to a health authority with signs of domestic abuse. But that was either completely overlooked or quite conveniently ignored. So we got a pretty big takeaway from that, that 
a lot of these victims, as well as the perpetrators, do make themselves known. However, this knowledge is completely neglected a lot of the time. And even beyond that, too, we learned that there's a real issue in communication across different agencies. So perhaps the schools might have some kind of idea about domestic abuse that's going on at home, but that's not communicated with the GP. There's a complete missed opportunity there between agencies, and that was one of the biggest takeaways that we had from that analysis. That was, that was a horrible, horrible discovery, wasn't it? That these different sectors operate in silences, that um, uh, a Department of Health official will not speak to a Department of Education official who will not speak to the police. I mean, it's absolute madness, and that is something that we must overcome. Especially in terms of an issue where there is an absolute dearth of data, we should really be trying a lot harder to not only collect and understand the numbers and the prevalence, but also to be able to share that between agencies. It's a safeguarding issue at the end of the day. As I remember, um, during our research, I uh, melted into tears and broke down in sobs uh, at least three times when we were meeting with survivors. What was one of the most shocking stories that you came across? One of the most shocking stories actually came from a male survivor who I interviewed. He was being horribly abused by his now ex-wife. And their first line of contact was actually the GP. He was able to convince her to go to an appointment so that they could try to work out their issues together rather than him going straight to the police. He was often told, if you go to the police, I'll tell them you're the one abusing me. So he went to the GP appointment, and the GP actually told him, this sounds like a cultural issue. I think you should crack on and just get moving. This doesn't seem like something I can really deal with, which makes a lot of sense only because we actually found from a YouGov survey in 2019 about a third of patient-facing staff at the NHS feel as though it's not a part of their job at all to even address any kind of element of domestic abuse. It is quite a shocker. Yehudis, when you decided to really tackle this issue of domestic abuse within your closed communities, what did you do? Who did you turn to? I was lucky enough to be able to collaborate with other people who had been thinking about other systemic issues. Um, we created Nahamu, which tackles five what we say are the five pillars of ideologically motivated harm in the Jewish community. The cover-up of abuse is something, it's not that we're not um, concerned about in individual incidents of abuse, but what we're really trying to raise awareness of is the systemic nature of the cover-up of abuse. Um, and then we also talk about forced marriage as systemic within the um, cultural practices in the community. Um, the systemic denial of education, um, which is incidentally worse for boys than it is for girls in the Jewish community. And then we have a, a, a probably the most serious but overarching issue of the denial of personal autonomy. And it was through 
meeting other people um, who had experience in the counter-extremism sector who helped me think about it in that systemic way, particularly Eve Sachs, who had been lobbying on um, the denial of secular education for a really long time, going back about 10 years at least. Um, being able to see it in that kind of really holistic, systemic way, I was able to kind of take a little bit of a step back um, and it's it's really just been a case of raising awareness. I mean, nobody's willing to talk about this stuff. In fact, when you when you talk about you know marriage practices and what's expected of a young bride, you know, immediate consummation of the marriage um, with a young man who's probably never had sex before himself, um, he's been taught that masturbation is the ultimate sin, and then all of a sudden he's got this young bride who's available to him. It, it opens up really obvious possibilities for harm. Um, but yet, often, when I, when I talk about, for example, forced marriage, there's, there's a defensiveness, and people outside the community are unwilling to criticize cultural practices simply because they are cultural practices that are unique to a specific community. But actually, it's not unique to a specific community. Rape is universal. Lots of women experience it. Everybody needs to understand consent. And it's ridiculous to, to suggest that within a certain community, oh, actually, everybody else gets to have... Um, enjoy freedom and and this subsection of society we're not we're, we're not going to extend those freedoms to them i don't i don't understand that approach alexandra the the one biggest insight that came to you as a result of your research in terms of health and health practitioners i found the complete lack of professional curiosity as well as the institutional backing completely shocking not only are a lot of these patient-facing staff feeling ill-equipped, whereas they don't have not only the training but the appropriate referral resources to deal with a lot of these issues, we find that people who are at the top of these institutions also don't feel as though it's appropriate or a part of their profession to actually address and safeguard people who are victims or even to address perpetrators of domestic abuse as well. Because remember, perpetrators do also tend to per perpetrators do tend to present themselves to health officials as well. That was what was the most shocking for me. Yehudis, any insight? Yeah, I think it's actually really common that you do have maybe a frontline um, practitioner who maybe earlier on in their career would have have had that professional curiosity, but ex you know having asked that, that question that maybe wasn't received very well or if there's a complaint being made about them has experienced, you know, not having that backup from, from, their, um, from, their, man from their managers. Um, you know, if a complaint's been made, for example, by saying, oh, that police officer or that nurse or that, that health visitor um, pursued an anti-Semitic line of inquiry or was prejudicial about Jewish practices, I find my experience has been that managers have have not always backed up that um that line of inquiry and have not been able to have that confidence themselves like you said and so why should frontline staff who are um under heavy workloads and and on much lower pay um carry that 
carry that responsibility when, when they don't feel confident that they'll be backed up. Absolutely. I think we need more institutions to actually be able to take on the responsibility to train everyone across the board. It needs to be a shared responsibility. I think for me, the, the biggest takeaway was the fact that so many victims of so-called honor abuse did not recognize this term and found it confusing and alienating. And also that when data is so scarce, language is so important. And that's why we've got to banish a term that is not only confusing, but risks legitimizing violence, rape, forced marriage, and all kinds of terrible abuse. There's no honor in abuse. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more, subscribe to our channel for more interesting content like this, and follow us on Twitter at CSJ Think Tank for more updates.